We've been ministered to in the reading of God's word. We've been ministered to in prayer. We've been ministered to so effectively in song. And now we come to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to John chapter 13, rather John chapter 14, John chapter 14. And we're going to be in verses 1 to 7, and I want to begin by reading the portion of Scripture before us. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. All of us know what it's like to be troubled in heart, to be disturbed in the inner man. We know what it's like to be overcome by concern for the welfare of others as they experience trial and tribulation or usher themselves into a a harmful life decision. We know what it's like to be overwhelmed by difficult circumstances, circumstances that press so heavily down upon us that they virtually paralyze us. We know what it's like to be overwhelmed by situations that are out of our control, that expose our human frailty and weakness. We know what it is to be worried, to be fearful, to be anxious. We know what it's like to experience all of that in the midst of confusion, where we lack understanding. And probably the most troubling aspect of life amidst its difficulties is the anticipation of the unknown. And specifically the unknown about the future. What's going to happen? How's this going to end? Are we going to be okay? Will we have to suffer? If we have to suffer, to what degree will we suffer? And in times like that, when the unknown has gripped us, we need a word of comfort. And the sole source for real and lasting comfort is the word of God. And the disciples find themselves in the midst of troubling circumstances. Circumstances that have caught them off guard, that are out of their control, that at this point are bathed in the unknown. And our Lord can see their trouble. And so he seeks to comfort them. And as he comforts them, he gives us really a recipe for comfort, 
a recipe that's multifaceted. It includes precept expressed by way of an exhortation. It includes promise that directs our minds and our hearts to heaven. And it includes proclamation that holds out Christ to us as the exclusive and unrivaled savior that he is. And so I ask you, are you troubled this day? If so, our Lord has comfort for the troubled heart. And it begins with the precept. The precept. This comes out in verse one. It says there, do not let your heart be troubled. To be troubled is to be in a state of turmoil, inner turmoil. It's a word that can be used of water where it means to cause movement by shaking or stirring. It's actually used this way in John 5 in the account of the lame man when the lame man says to Jesus, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Same word. And so it pictures the disciples as being inwardly stirred or shaken, thrown into confusion, the word can mean. Disturbed, unsettled, agitated. And to be troubled like this is both emotional and physiological because it's often that the emotions and strong ones at that typically trigger the nervous system. So not only are they experiencing emotion in this time, there's no doubt physiological effects of what they're experiencing. And you'll recall that even aside from the reference in John 5, this isn't the only time we've seen this word. It's used of Jesus no less than three times. It was used of him as he witnessed Mary and the Jews weeping over Lazarus. John eleven thirty three. 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. It was used of him on the heels of his announcement that the hour of his glorification had come. John 12, 27, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And it was used of him at the very table of this supper when he announced the presence of a traitor. John 13, 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And we'll see this word one other time. In fact, later in this chapter, John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so in his darkest hour, experiencing his own inner turmoil, which was an entirely righteous response to all that he was anticipating, instead of seeking to be comforted, he comforts his disciples. Showing yet again, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, John 13, 1. And so Jesus exhorts them, let not your heart be troubled. He's calling them to put off a troubled heart. 
And yet if he left it there, the remedy would be incomplete. Because to just put off a troubled heart and not put something on in its place would be ineffective. And so Jesus says, next half of verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, some translations render this differently. Instead of rendering them both as commands, some render this, you believe in God, believe also in me. Where their belief in God is a statement of fact, and Jesus is then calling them to believe in him also. And that translation is possible. The form of this verb can be rendered either way, either as a statement of fact or as a command, an imperative. And though the difference is somewhat inconsequential, I tend to see them both as imperatives. Believe in God is the exhortation, believe also in me. Where this isn't calling for an initial expression of faith, the disciples had already believed. But instead it's calling for a synonym of faith. It's calling on them to trust. To trust in the Father, and to trust also in Christ. You see, the remedy for a troubled heart is what? Trust in God, in his goodness, in his promises, in his providence, in his faithfulness, his loyal love. And just think the disciples had a lot to be troubled about. The announcement of a traitor, the announcement of Peter's denials, some residual pride and shame from the the foot washing event. But more than all of that, what would have troubled them? The announcement of his departure. Jesus would be leaving them and he would be leaving them as a critical step in the accomplishment of their salvation. And so what the disciples needed to do was what? To trust him. That everything would be okay that it was to their advantage that he go. That this was the unfolding of God's sovereign plan put in place before the foundation of the world. And that everything would work out for the glory of God and for their good. And so the call is to trust. And implicit in this call to trust is the co-equality of the Father and the Son. Jesus says to them, trust in God, trust also in me. Now, let's use the disciples as an example for us. And let's consider all that was unknown to them at this particular point in time. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes and do so knowing what you know as the the redemptive history they are about to experience unfolds. They don't know exactly how the betrayal would take place. They're unaware of the arrest of Jesus, his mock trial where he would be condemned to death. His crucifixion is unknown to them at this point in time. His resurrection is unknown to them at this point in time. His appearance, his appearances thereafter is unknown to them. His ascension, the pouring out of the spirit, the birth of the church, their arrests and imprisonments, the persecution that would come upon them, the gospel going to the Gentiles, Acts 10, most of them being put to death, tradition having it that Peter would be crucified upside down, 
John banished to the island of Padmos and everything in between. There was so much that was unknown to them at this point in time. And yet, is it not accurate that hindsight being what it is, that all they had to do is trust him? Didn't everything work out just fine? Did God not give them grace for every hurdle along the way? Every bit of suffering, every bit of adversity, every bit of trial and difficulty. Are they not now in the presence of the Lord? And so in the end, they had no reason to be troubled. And so trust is medicine for the troubled soul. And I want to exhort you to think on what it is to trust in God. And so sit back and just consider some of these Psalms and the way they call you to trust. Psalm 25.2, you don't have to turn with me. You can not jot them down later. Psalm 25.2, oh my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank him. Psalm 32, 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. That's the loyal love of God, his covenant love. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Psalm 40 and verse 4, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Psalm 91, 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 112:7, referring to the man who fears the Lord, he will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And how about this to finish it off? Proverbs 3, 5 and following, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. You see, the call here is to trust in the Lord, to trust in his goodness, his providence, his promises, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, to trust in him. Now, If you're experiencing trouble of heart and you hear the exhortation to put off that heart of trouble and to to put on trust in its place, is that necessarily going to vanish all trouble? Not necessarily. But it'll point your eyes in the direction they need to be. And by pointing your eyes to the Lord himself, and confessing your trust in him and and meditating on his goodness and his grace, his sovereignty, that everything is going to work for his glory and your good. It will put strength in you to put one foot in front of the next and to press on even if the heart is troubled. 
And then you'll continue to go through those difficulties. And you'll see the Lord care for you providentially through each one of them. And then all of a sudden, hills that look so insurmountable won't seem so insurmountable because you'll have experienced the ongoing faithfulness and providence of God in caring for you through all the difficulties of life, knowing that your eternity is secure and in his hands and that you have, as we'll see in a moment, a house, rather a dwelling place in the Father's house. And so what is it that you need to trust the Lord with this day? Trust him. He's worthy. He's able. He's powerful. That's the precept. Trust in God. And having laid down the precept, Jesus now shifts to the promise. The promise. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus is directing his disciples to their glorious future in heaven. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. And the impression that's often given is that heaven is filled with many mansions. Implying there's a a mansion for every believer. And yet that's not what this says. Jesus says, in my father's house. That means there is but one house, not many. But in that house are what? Many dwelling places. A word that refers to a room or abode. It's rendered that way in verse 23, where Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, there it is, with him. And so not to be the the bearer of bad news, but there's no mansion awaiting you in heaven. But there is a dwelling place in the Father's house, and I'm sure you're going to love it. I'm confident it will blow your socks off. And then Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The ESV frames this as a question saying, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But the effect is the same. Jesus never would have said there were many dwelling places if there weren't. And the reason for his departure is what? He is going to prepare a place for them. But what does this preparation consist of? You might get the impression that Jesus is departing to make ready a room for them but the rooms already exist. How do we know? Because Jesus says in my father's house are many dwelling places. They're already there. Never mind the reality that Jesus can will them into existence in an instant. And so what's, what's he saying here? He's saying his departure is that which prepares a place for them. What's his departure consist of? His death, resurrection, and ascension. 
Jesus is going to secure a place for them in the Father's house. And to do that, he must die for their sins, rise from the grave, and ascend to his rightful place in glory. And so it's not so much that Jesus goes away to make ready a room for them. No, he goes away because his going is the preparation that is necessary for that room to be theirs. As he secures their salvation. And so a separation was coming. But as we saw last time, and as we can see clearly here, the separation is temporary. And this comes out in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And so Jesus promises that he will come again and that when he does, he will receive them to himself, at which time they will inherit their dwelling place in the Father's house and be with Christ where he is. You say, well, what's he referring to? Well, he's referring to his his coming, not the coming of the Spirit. He's not referring to his his resurrection and the appearances thereafter. He's referring to his return. He's going to come again and receive them to himself. And then he says this in verse four, and you know the way where I am going. Though more on that in a moment. Now at this point in time, you might be sensing a bit of a tension. Jesus is promising to the 11 in this case that he is going to return, receive them to himself, that where he is, they they may be also. And yet we know what? The disciples have long since died and the Lord has not yet returned. And so how are we to account for this tension? Well, one, the promise that's made here is a, a promise that transcends the disciples. This is a promise that isn't limited to the 11. It's a promise that is made to everyone who is in Christ. And that means that if you're in Christ, this applies to you. There's a a dwelling place in the Father's house reserved for you. And should the Lord return in your lifetime, he will receive you to himself and will show you to your room in the Father's house. But that still leaves a tension. What about the disciples? Does that mean the disciples miss out on this most glorious event? Well, two, interestingly enough, Paul deals with this tension in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn there for a moment. The the Thessalonians were concerned that those who had died prior to the coming of the Lord would miss out on this event. And, and Paul is referring to the same event that, that, that Jesus is referring to in John 14. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, it says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So so those who have died in Jesus prior to his return, Jesus will bring them as well. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those or precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so Paul makes it abundantly clear that the dead would rise first. And so when the the Lord comes to receive his people to himself, those who have died in him prior to his coming will be raised first. Those who are alive at that time will be raised second. We will meet the Lord in the air and then be where he is. But that still leaves a bit of a tension because you might be wondering, well, where are the disciples now? And where have they been since their death? Well, three, Paul addresses this issue in 2 Corinthians 5. Turn there. And it might be helpful to know that 2 Corinthians 5 was written after 1 Thessalonians. We would maybe ask the question, what happens when we die? Where do we go? What should happen to us if we die prior to the coming of the Lord? Well, Paul deals with that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, and by the earthly tent he's referring to the body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We're, we're longing to be in heaven. Inasmuch as verse 3, We having put it on will not be found naked, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And then he says this in verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And so Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, what does Paul say in Philippians 1 and verse 23? But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, to be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh, that is the body, is more necessary for your sake. And so even Paul was torn between remaining on in the flesh and and the fruitful ministry that would allow and and departing to be with Christ because that is very much better. In Paul's mind, to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. And so where are the disciples? They're with the Lord. 
They're in the Father's house. With one tension that remains, they haven't yet received the resurrection body. And so they're there in the Father's house. They're they're in the room, we would presume, that has been reserved for them. But they're there as spirit, not as glorified human flesh. That will come later. And what this means is for that every generation of believers since the, the ascension of Christ, including the disciples, has lived with the expectation that our Lord could return in their lifetime. There has never been a generation of people, never a generation of believers that has lived on this green earth who haven't lived anticipating that the Lord's return could take place at any moment. In fact, I would say to you that the scriptures teach the very next event on the prophetic calendar is the return of the Lord. And he could come at any moment. Which is a call to be what? Be ready. So what can we say about our Lord's promise? As he seeks to comfort the disciples, he points them to their glorious future in heaven. That means that, that heavenly thoughts and anticipation of our heavenly kingdom, the, the heavenly reality that we're going to enjoy in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the Father, is a comforting reality. One that we need to think on more regularly than we do. And that's what trial and tribulation does, doesn't it? It, it weans you from this world. It makes you long for your heavenly home, your, your true home. This is our, our earthly pilgrimage. And so by experiencing difficulty and trial and tribulation, we long for heaven. And as we think on heaven, we're comforted because we know that our eternal life is secure in Christ. And that this is just a fleeting vapor of a life. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. And so the lesson here is that we need to think on and anticipate the joys and bliss of heaven. That's the promise. A heavenly abode. Now, third, the proclamation. The proclamation back to John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And so they still don't grasp that he's going back to the Father. He's told them he's leaving. He's told them they can't come. He's told them they will follow later. He's even told them he's going to the Father's house. But they still don't understand, and they won't understand until John sixteen twenty nine. And so Thomas, speaking on behalf of the others, effectively asks, how can we know the way when we don't even know the destination? He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about resulting in the sixth I am statement in John's gospel. Verse six, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. Again, if they're listening, he's telling them he's going to the father. And he declares to them that he is the way. 
And in saying that, he isn't saying that he is one among many ways. He is saying he is the one and only way. He is the one and only way to the Father. The one and only way to know the Father. He is the one and only way to have access to the Father. The only way of salvation. All roads do not lead to heaven. There is but one road that does, and all other roads lead to everlasting hell. Why is Jesus the only way? Because there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the eternal word made flesh and is therefore truly God and truly man. He lived a perfect life. He died a sin atoning death. And he was raised on the third day, having conquered the grave. And as the son of God and the son of man and God, the son, he has the exclusive prerogative to make the father known to whom he wishes. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the, the father except the son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Not only is the Son the one and only way, he has the prerogative to reveal the Father to whom he wishes. He then declares, I am the truth. Which is to say, he is the very embodiment of truth. He's he's truth personified. He is the the infallible source of truth. And he is the final standard of all truth. As such, he is full of truth, John 1.14. He is the realization of the truth, John 1.17. And he is the supreme revelation of the Father, having explained him to us, John 1.18. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in whom? Christ in the Son. And salvation itself is described as coming to a knowledge of the truth, First Timothy 2.4. And finally, he is the life. Which is to say, he is eternal life itself. He is eternal life personified. He is the source of eternal life. In fact, he's already declared that he is the bread of life. The very bread from heaven that when received by faith produces eternal life, which is the abundant life that he talks about in John 10. To have life and to have life abundantly is to have eternal life. And he is eternal life. He is the life. Furthermore, he is the giver of all life through him. All things came into being, John 1, 3. He is the sustainer of all life. In him, all things hold together, Colossians 1, 17. And he is the resurrection and the life and will resurrect every person who has ever lived either to a resurrection of life or to a resurrection of judgment, John 5, 29. And on account of all of that, he declares, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no way to claim that you know God and reject the Son. To to claim any knowledge of God and reject the Son is to claim a false God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Father without the Son. You cannot have the Son without the Father. You cannot have the Spirit without the Father and the Son. 
There is no way to God but through his son. To reject his son is to reject God himself. And so Jesus declares a profound declaration. Calling on Thomas to realize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Declaring that no one can come to the Father but through him. And this is why you must come to Christ. And and Jesus says that all who come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. He even says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is humble of heart. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He calls on you to come unto him. And you say, well, why why ought I to come to him? Well, because he lived a perfect life. He he lived a life that that you could never have lived. He's the only one who could have ever fulfilled the law. And he did. He fulfilled it in every respect. And then he died the death that you deserve. He went to the cross and suffered under the wrath of God for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. The father treated the son as though he committed the sin of his people, though he was perfect and unblemished. And he swallowed up that wrath. He died. He went into the grave and he rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the father. And now the call on you is to come unto him, to come unto Christ by faith, to to believe on him, to receive in him the forgiveness of sins, to, to receive a righteousness that is perfect, the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so the call is to believe on this one. There is no other way to the Father, no other way to heaven, no other way to salvation. Every other road leads to destruction. Every other road is on the broad path. And so you must come to Christ. Confess your sin. Acknowledge that you have come short of the glory of God. And believe on the one whom the Father has given to be the sacrifice for sin. And then our Lord says this in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now he's not calling into question that Thomas knows him or not. He's, he's helping to sharpen Thomas's sight his spiritual perception. In reality, he's saying, since you know me, you have known my father also. Then he declares, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now that's going to make Philip ask a question, show us the father. And and our Lord's going to say, Philip, are you not listening? If you have seen me, you have seen him. He's the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see the Father. Now the Lord is going to comfort the disciples really for the next three chapters. And as he comforts them, he exhorts them, he instructs them, he makes promises to them. And so as we think about what it is to be comforted, that's what is necessary. We need to be exhorted. 
exhorted to trust in God, exhorted to, to think on heaven, our end destination. And we need to be instructed with promises that, that explain to us and tell us what we ought to be anticipating and looking forward to. And we need proclamation. We need Christ to be heralded to us. We need to see him high and lifted up. We need to see him as the savior and king that he is. We need to worship him and behold him as worthy. And then we'll look at everything that we're experiencing in this life. And it'll be nothing. Just a blip on the radar. A small hurdle on the way to everlasting glory. And so there's more comfort to come. But our Lord begins here. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this time in your word. And we pray, Father God, that you would use it, whether to address trouble we're currently experiencing in our hearts or whether to prepare us for a time of trouble. Father, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for his glory, his honor. We thank you for the way that he loves his disciples and loves us. Father, we thank you for your love toward us. And we pray, Father God, that in this time, if there be any need of comfort, that you would comfort now. In Christ's name, amen.